Hello, and welcome to the Bills, Bills, Bills edition of Political Traction. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. It's not every day that a divorce makes the news, but when it comes to Bill and Melinda Gates, their separation will have real consequences for philanthropy, business, and finance. So how do you draw the line between what's personal and what's public? Here to discuss is our all-star panel of media minds. Caroline Harvey was the executive producer of CBC's The National. Andre Pratt was the editor-in-chief of La Presse. And Michael Cook was the editor of the Toronto Star. Plus, speaking of bills, we'll talk Bill 96, which would amend the Constitution to recognize Quebec as a nation whose official language is French. All these bills are coming due, so stay tuned. This is Political Traction. All right, we are back for another month episode of The Scrum. With me, I have the regular cast of characters, Andre, Michael, and Caroline. And we have um, a fun episode today. And I think also one, as Caroline aptly pointed out before we started, is the What's Old is New episode. So we're going to talk about, um, you know, Bill Gates. How do you take down or cover those sort of big stories that there's rumors, but we don't know how to substantiate it? Bill 96 in Quebec how Premier Legault in Quebec continues to do amazing things such as unilaterally amend the constitution uh, and has those superpowers. Uh, we're going to touch on the Middle East and how journalists are covering it. And also, uh, you know, a story that's been around for a long time, but certainly sometimes getting credibility right now is UFOs as the Pentagon prepares to release information. People, all eyes are on Canada as well and what we are or are not uh, talking about there. But first I wanted to get into, um, Bill 96. Uh, and I'm going to start off with you, Andre. So Quebec announced significant reforms to language laws this month. Uh, there are sweeping implications for businesses, immigrants, students, the public. It includes a new French language commissioner will task for monitoring uh, the knowledge, learning and use of French by immigrants. Bilingual municipalities are going to where less than half the residents speak English will lose their status. Um, CGEP uh, enrollment for English will be frozen. Um, students are going to have to pass French language tests before receiving their diploma. There's a snitch line. Um, but the good news is, is that you can still say bonjour, hi, and you won't get in trouble. And, uh, <laughs> but, um, the other big piece is that there's, they want to require an amendment to the constitution that will recognize Quebec as a separate nation and French as its only official language. Now this came out, Quebec said, oh, we've looked at it. We believe, you know, we can amend the constitution, no problem. And surprise, surprise, the prime minister has come out this week and said, oh yes, of course, Quebec, you can unilaterally amend the constitution and does not require a national conversation. Um, Andre, how is this bill going over in Quebec and were you surprised by the Prime Minister's pronouncements this month? So the, we, we don't have any polls yet, but I, I'm absolutely convinced that, uh, you know, over 70% of Quebecers are in favor of this. Um, I'm personally a bit flabbergasted, not so much by the measures dealing uh, immediately with the issues of French language but with the very wide ranging use of the notwithstanding clause, because they're not only you know, targeting the few rights that are, are directly related to language, they're essentially putting aside the whole Canadian Charter and the Quebec Charter of Rights, both of them, and putting aside all these rights and saying, well, as far as language is concerned, which is the same thing they did with religion, religious signs, th these rights don't matter. So I think that's uh, quite excessive. But there's no real debate in Quebec on this up till now, right? And the same goes with the Constitutional Amendment. I find it extraordinarily illogical for Quebec, who's been saying for decades 
that Ottawa does not have the right to unilaterally change the constitution without Quebec's consent. And then they do it, right? Yeah. So it's very logical, but it, it works for Mr. Legault at, at this point. Did, did Quebec, I have it in my head somewhere, and it's quite small. I have it in my head somewhere that Quebec never signed the constitution. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So how the can they change a, a constitution they haven't signed? Well, actually, they're changing the British North America Act. So that's not the 82 constitution, it's the 1867 constitution. But you know, you, you were, Amanda, you were saying that this is old stuff coming again. You remember this debate during the Meech uh, discussions about whether if you put distinct society in the constitution, whether it matters or not, whether the courts will use it or not. There was a long ranging debate on this by constitutional experts and so on. And we're having exactly the same debate now. Quebec saying, we're putting this in the constitution, but it won't have any effect. So why do you do it? And then, and then you have other people who are saying, no, 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 the courts will use this to interpret the constitution. Therefore, it's a major change. And uh, so I find this quite very discouraging. And I'm, again, flabbergasted by the statements by the prime minister that it, he finds it perfectly okay. Uh, I mean, if a province can change unilaterally the constitution, other provinces will start doing it also. I think that's that's the point to me, right? I Like Harper in 2008 made like one of his first statements as prime minister was Quebec is an, an independent nation within Canada, mm. or whatever, unique nation, whatever the exact wording was. I remember it very distinctly because... Uh, the I was working in his office at the time and like all of the Western caucus lost their minds and he was like, shut up working this. This is what's going to appeal to. So like the political expediency there has been there for a while. What concerns me is the idea that a province can just choose to unilaterally amend the constitution. And there is no conversation about that. And what happens if other provinces choose to do so? I mean, Michael, are you, are you worked up about this one? Or are you kind of like, eh, no, I'm, I look, <clears throat> so everything, <laughs> everything I'm about to say has a question mark on the end of it. It's going to sound like statements, but it's got a question mark on the end of it. And the question mark is for Andre. So I worked at the Montreal Gazette in the 1970s, where very few reporters spoke French. The editor spoke no French. The publisher spoke no French. I was the city editor running the whole of the news of that city and spoke very little French. And, it's, and, and at the time, I think it was the PQ was saying the burden of the, the, the burden of bilingualism is on francophones, and it was then. And now the burden, and I don't believe it's the burden, of bilingualism is on anglophones. And I think 90% of anglophones, at least in Montreal, are at least functionally in French. But I, I look at this, I think, and I, I try to pull it up to, I'm doing air quotes now, to 30,000 feet. And, and my understanding uh, helps me appreciate why 70% of, as Andre just said, of Quebecers support this, this change. It's because of the fundamental, in my view, four Fs, right? The Quebecois have only ever had four Fs that define them. They had the faith, it works in French too. They had the faith, the farm, the family, and French. And the faith of the farm and the family all supported the French. Well, they've lost the faith, they've lost their farms, and they've lost their families. And all they've got left is French. And the other three things, faith, farm, family, kept French in and English out. Now English is in. So I do go along with the notion that once you lose the island of Montreal and less than 50% of those homes in Montreal are French speaking homes, it is the beginning of assimilation. And I buy into that. Therefore, I'm more sympathetic to this 
notion of changing the constitution to protect the French language. And I know it's a price to pay, but I'm kind of okay with that, kind of. So I'm more sympathetic. But that's a question mark for Andre. Caroline should jump in, yeah. My first thought, Andre, was if I'm ever playing a game of you know political quick facts, I want you as my partner. Uh, knowing all the different years, very impressive. Now, I'm probably surprised, I have to say, that somewhat my own, having grown up in Montreal myself, um, I remember the implications of Bill 101 so well. I remember the implications of Bill 101 on business. Um, and I remember what it was like just being an Anglophone growing up. And, and I actually I feel really grateful for the French that was a big part of my life. But I'm actually surprised that there isn't more of a pushback. Um, and Mandy, you mentioned at the beginning just the sweeping implications you know, for business and for students and for immigrants. These are all key values for Quebec too. And I remember doing a story many years ago for CBC around how challenging it was for Quebec to attract international business because in, English is the universal language. And if, if they are really going to have rules where you're going to have to give access to your, your emails and your training systems to ensure that French is the first language in any business, I think they said over the size of 50 people, I think yeah. it's going to have really big implications. And I'm, I'm surprised that it isn't, it isn't causing more waves than it is. Caroline, perhaps we were in Montreal at the same time, and, and, and I wouldn't be, I was there in the 70s and, and 80s. I found Bill 101 to be wonderful for my family. Uh, my children were forced to go to French school, not French immersion, but French school, be among French kids, French speaking kids. And they came out of that system, perfectly bilingual, able to knock on two different cultural doors and live in those rooms. Unlike the, uh, the uh, French kids, French speaking kids, not the kids of the PQ elite, of course, who did go to and learn English, but the normal French kids couldn't. They were just had one language. My kids had two. I thought that was a great gift of Robert Barassa to my family and God rest mm -hmm. his soul, I thank him for it. No, oh, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't disagree with that, but now people are seeking more freedoms than ever, I'm, I'm surprised. It, it's interesting to me though that, you know, Carolyn, you kind of mentioned it like a little bit and sort of like Andre and Michael is this, this sense of a trade, like Michael, particularly it's a sense of a trade-off, right? Which I have, I think we've even seen in how Legault has handled the pandemic and that it's, it's very clear, like a give and take with Quebecers around, yes, we're going to punish you for this, but we'll give you a bit of relief with this. Yes. We know that, that schools are going to stay open. Yes. We know that may rise case counts, but we believe that's a, a valid trade-off for X, um, you know, bill 21, Yes, we know that these religious, you know, the strictures around religion is going to impact a minor group of people, but we believe the benefit to the greater society is, is better. And I think, again, yes, we know this bill today is going to impact businesses and English speakers, and we know that's going to harm them, but we believe the impact of greater society is more important and the protection of French is more important. It, it just strikes me that Quebec is a lot better at having those really honest conversations with their populace at a political and, and a regular level than the rest of the country where I think we've like, we just don't have those. That doesn't happen here in Ontario, I would say. Um, do you think that's been sort of the key to the success of this is that they're very, they're very bald about the trade-offs. I mean, what do you think, Andre? Possibly. I think one of the reasons why this, um, these major chains are accepted and, and promoted and, and popular one of the reasons is that uh, Mr. Legault has uh, succeeded in uh, trying to demonstrate that these are moderate measures, right? Because there were so many rumors, probably orchestrated by the government, 
you know, that they would come up with things that were very radical, like, you know, uh, applying Bill 101 completely on colleges and things like that. Uh, uh, and they came up with something more moderate. And therefore, people are, many people are just breathing a sigh, sigh of relief and saying, oh, well, finally, it's not that bad. But in fact, I think it is that bad. Uh, but, you know, as Michael said, uh, French is what defines by a large part what Quebecers, uh, French-speaking Quebecers are. And uh, for decades, centuries, there have been some people saying, you know, if we don't do this, we'll disappear. This theme of disappearance, assimilation, has always been present in Quebec's history, and it's still there. Quebecers are still concerned that if they don't do things to protect their culture and their language, in a hundred years, they won't be any French speak speakers in Quebec. So that plays very, a very important role in Quebecers' psyche. And so when a government says, we're going to do this to protect French, it's very difficult for others who may be opposed to some aspect or the other to, to fight it. And that's why, for instance, you find that all the opposition parties are saying in Quebec, in, in the National Assembly, are saying, well, okay, we'll, we'll look at the details, but it looks fine. And you even see, since Quebec is a major, uh, major part of the next federal election, you even see the prime minister saying, yeah, well, it, it's all right. And all the opposition <laughs> leaders are also saying it's all right. So yeah. how can you have a debate when every political party in Canada seems to agree? Yeah. Andre, anybody driving into Quebec would, uh, into Montreal would think Montreal is a French city. And of course it isn't, it's a, it's a, a visage for, it's not true. Uh, and it's, it's from the numbers I've read, and it's, it's about to fall or could fall below 50% French speaking for a variety of three or four reasons. And the notion is if you lose Montreal, you, you then begin to lose the province. Do you buy into that? Um, well, if we, if we were losing Montreal, as you say, yes, I would buy into it. But I don't think the numbers show that, bear that out. What the numbers show is that Quebec, like the other parts of Canada, uh, welcomes an increasing number of immigrants. And those immigrants uh, don't switch to English as they used to, right? The immigrants 40 years, 50 years ago, when they came here, they learned English and they didn't learn French. This has changed. The immigrants and their kids especially are learning French. They have to because of Bill 101. What, ha what happens is that those people, when they're at home, they continue to speak their mother tongue. Right, whether they come from Yugoslavia or Africa or China, or they use their mother tongue when they're at home. They don't use French and they don't use English either. And that has an impact on all the statistics that you that you see that seem to show that French is is going down while it while it isn't. So I think it's way exaggerated. I'm not, I'm not saying that some measures are not, not important and some of them are in Bill 96. I'm just saying that it does not justify putting aside all the fundamental rights that Quebecers and the rest of Canadians have fought to keep and, uh, and to put in the constitution to protect us. And I don't think it's worth starting a new, you know, a civil war, quote unquote, with the rest of Canada on whether Quebec is distinct or a national nation or whatever. I uh, want to keep, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, excuse me. Yeah, I say I want to keep us, uh, we have a bunch of stuff to get to, so I want to keep us moving. Uh, this next topic, I... <laughs> Intrigued to hear your thoughts on. So uh, Bill and Melinda Gates are getting divorced. That kind of hit the world like a bomb. Um, you know, they're famous for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, you know, Bill Gates, obviously, we know who he is. Um, they were sort of, Bill Gates in particular was kind of viewed as this benign 
mildly benevolent sort of tech bro that you know from ages ago that wears like untrendy clothes and whatever and all of a sudden since this has happened we found out he partied with epstein you know he had was investigated by the board for inappropriate relationships in the office i mean just the laundry seems to be pouring <laughs> out all of a sudden about this guy which made me think seeing all these kind of takedowns and me too's and all this kind of stuff recently is that obviously these rumors must have been out there but they were you couldn't cover it or they couldn't get to it. Um, so I don't want to so much talk about that specifically, although we can if you, you wish to comment, but more about as editors, you've obviously all I'm guessing taken down pretty big, important people in your careers. How do you approach telling a story like that or breaking a story about a, a huge, you know, powerful, rich, whatever person who's in the eyes of the public is this benign, you know, benevolent giver who turns out to be nothing of the case um i'm gonna go to you michael because i feel like maybe you've sunk your teeth into a few a few reputations <laughs> your career. let me say first of all i am enjoying the delicious irony of uh, of the wife of this multi-billionaire who together had uh, uh, put a billion dollars into um, women's empowerment and then the bosses uh, found fishing off the company dock. Uh, mm -hmm. That's, uh, and then she, and there's been some old fashioned bios, you know, the non-disclosures where they should, the non-disclosure should be renamed, keep it all secret clause and we'll give you lots of money. Um, and I wonder if Melinda has signed one and whether in fact she's in that divorce, whether she actually leaked that Epstein stuff uh, uh, as part of that uh, disengagement from her husband. You know, you say the word Je Jeffrey Epstein and the petals start falling off all the roses, it's so toxic. Um, and Gates, in fact, called, I think he called Epstein's lifestyle intriguing, which uh, leads, oh. to, leads to another 10 questions. But in my own experience, uh, all this is, is, is spoken of now largely because of the work that's been done um, with, the, with the, the brave women who started the, uh, the Me Too phenomenon rolling. Uh, I, when, when I was at the Star, we, you, when you hear stuff, you, you, you got to go fishing. And, and we did on a couple of occasions with two big, powerful men in the country. We'd heard that they were misbehaving um, uh, many times over time. Uh, and we, we went through all their former employees, former secretaries, former interns, and found nothing on both uh, those occasions. So, so to catch someone who you hear nothing about, I, I wonder sometimes if it should mean that a, a news organization should run an investigation of, say, the top 10 celebrities, musicians, businessmen in Canada, and see what, see what those nets bring to the surface. Just go back and, and talk to people that they've known and, and people who've worked for them for 10 years or more. I don't know. I, I, I think they, these stories come along and they're shocking when they do. I'm sure that there's many, many more that we never hear of, perhaps because of these keep it all secret clauses. Um, it, it's, it's, it's tough to do it unless, unless you have something beautiful like a walking. You'll remember that story in, in uh, uh, the Giambroni story in, uh, uh, in about yeah, I do. 2000, I think it was. Uh, the, the woman walked into the Star newsroom and said, I've got a story for you. She, um, sorry, she walked into your newsroom? Yeah. And said, well, not literally, but she phoned someone. And said, oh, got... so I thought she like meandered in and was like, well, hey, no. I got a... <laughs> Well, the technical term is it's a walk-in. Well, that's so a term. It, okay. It, it was a walk-in. Uh, and uh, Jan Brony, you might recall, uh, denied it um, uh, fulsomely uh, uh, over and over. 
And then one of our reporters said, well, that's all very well, but, but we have another woman, which we didn't have. Um, <laughs> made it up. And then Gian Broni just then just, he just like slit himself open and it all came out. Oh yeah, okay, it's right, but I didn't really mean it, et cetera, et cetera. And so in that case, you know, as you remember, he immediately left the mayor's race, the, the race to be mayor of Toronto. So sometimes you get lucky with the walking. Sometimes you've got to do a lot of work. And sometimes it's not true. It's just rumor. <laughs> um, Caroline, you've gone from, you know, managing editor of the CBC, the national to now you're on kind of the flip side of the fence with, with me on the consulting side. Obviously we don't help individuals, but we do, you know, advise corporations and that kind of stuff when, you know, an employee has misbehaved, how to make sure that those employees keep working and whatever, what, given you've been on both sides of the fence, what do you make of stories like this? Because obviously this has greater implications, right? For Microsoft itself, who is there? How are they managing that? Like, how do they keep their employees trust? Um, what about the board? They looked into it, but it didn't actually result in anything. So w- what do you make of stories like this and how to deal with them? It's interesting. It, it's a good question. Um, I'm first just going to react to something Michael said, which is the idea of going fishing, which, which will be controversial in newsrooms. Um, just the idea, because in in theory, I would say that, at least in big Canadian newsrooms, the rule of thumb is that, you know, it, it's not, you can't just pick the top 10 people and go see if you can find anything on them. Like for any investigative piece, you know, if you're an investigative journalist that wants to look into long-term care facilities, or you want to look into the behavior of a prominent Canadian individual, you really can only do so if you have reason to believe that they're doing something wrong. And, and if you believe that, knowing that they've done something wrong is in the public interest. And for me, that's always been when it comes to someone's personal reputation and around the Me Too movement, it was a really um, hard bar because you know that as soon as you start to suggest that you've heard rumors about somebody, their life is forever altered. Or you better at least appreciate that the public is better knowing that there are wider implications. For me, it's always been about that, that it's not, for me, it's not really about Bill Gates as an individual. But what does it say about the things that you brought up, Amanda? Like, what does it mean about public trust in general? Or, or how does it change the way we think about the institution of marriage? Or how does it think about, I don't mean, you could bring up a million things, but I think it always, for me personally, the bar is that it always had to be bigger than the individual themselves. Like the story is not about, for me, what Amanda might've done. It's, it's about the implications of that behavior. And I think that's something that newsrooms wrestle with all the time in trying to, in trying to decide um, does it make, you know, is it, is this is an important piece of information for Canadians to know. And I, I'm not sure I always agree, to be honest, when I see the headlines, both in my new role um, and in my old role, I, I would say I still struggle in the same way. I haven't really changed my perspective. Uh, Andre, have you gone fitting? No, <laughs> no, but we, we've had, uh, where I worked at La Presse, uh, we've had some major stories breaking out after our investigations as other newspapers on major personalities, especially in the Quebec star system, which is very uh, different than the, the rest of Canada's. And uh, in, in all these cases, we were extra careful to find a large, well, a significant number of witnesses and victims, alleged victims and so on, so that we were certain that there was you know, something is happening, not just rumors. We had people on, uh, you know, on or off the record, but we know who they were. We know they were credible. We checked their stories. We were extra careful. And in the end, when the story is supported by, uh, you know, uh, very credible accounts by many different people, including victims, uh, well, you, you, you have to go ahead. 
so I, I think the, the, what has changed, and certainly in the, you can imagine in the case of Bill Gates, the weight on the victims who decide to you know, come forward and say this happened in this year, in that year involving Bill Gates, who is one of the world's most powerful persons. So it takes a great deal of courage. And in this particular case, I really admire the persons who did this, you know, and uh, uh, because the media can't do anything if they don't have credible witnesses, credible sources. And speaking of that, I did want to just track off briefly and go back to you, Michael, because you you did say, like, the June Brody thing intrigued me, right, the way you described it, because obviously you had a woman come in, she was credible, he's lying to you. So then you guys in turn go back and say, well, we have someone else, which usually if there's a pattern, there's a pattern, right? So how do you like fish or how do you go and like, what's the action of finding this stuff? Is this literally like people in cars with, you know, staking people out? Is it, is it digital now? Is it common for you to kind of try and call someone's bluff? Like, how does that work? Well, as so often happens, I've expressed myself very badly. I never actually went fishing. I'm saying that to, to find these, you, you could do that. You could pick That's the top right. 10. I, I never did it. And as far as I know, the star never did it. On the Jan Brony case, uh, it was just in a room. Uh, uh, he was on the phone with a couple of advisors and one of the reporters said, well, what about the second woman? And that was when there was pause. So then it all came out. I'll never forget that night. It was an extraordinary time. And, uh, and then he admitted not just to two, but to several multiple affairs, which took him out of the, out of, out of the Merrill race. And, and to Caroline's point, the point about that was he was standing on the platform, the voting platform on the hustings, doing the family values yes. speech with his right. wife next to him. So, oh, yeah. so it, you, you can widen the justification or narrow the justification, whatever I think you're most comfortable with. But, but he walked right into that. I might say not so much in his defense, but he was a terrific candidate, uh, a smart young man, a great future. Um, and, uh, and afterwards he went away um, and and try to launder himself, I think, reasonably successfully by doing... Yeah, he went to New York work. and then he was in Dubai or something. Yeah, being some other good work. And I hope he comes back because I think I think he, I think he has uh, learned his lesson, I guess. I hope so, for sure. But he had a lot to offer the citizens of Toronto. All right. So speaking... Okay, now I'm going to get to a serious topic um, after saying that. Now, speaking of things that are difficult to cover, uh, the Middle East, we batted around, I will totally tell our listeners, we batted around whether or not we even put this on the podcast this week because it's such a tough issue to talk about. And we don't have a lot of time to talk about it, right, in a thoughtful way. But, you know, the big international story right now, other than COVID, is you see these videos of Tel Aviv um, with just, you know, these bombs hitting the Iron Dome. It looks like fireworks, um, you know, dozens and dozens of people are dying in Gaza. It is, it is, it is a huge, big, chewy story. Right. And it's, and obviously this is, you know, there's conflict in the Middle East, but this stuff pops up in big ways like it did in 2014. Now we have it back again with a much more sustained conflict. I don't particularly want to debate the merits of either side of this, although we certainly can, if you guys feel you want to dive in, but more as journalists, there are, there are specialists who cover this, right? There are people that are assigned to this beat day in, day out who deal with it. But then there are situations like right now where it pops up to be, you know, one of the top three stories of the day. And therefore people who maybe don't live this every day are talking about it. Is that really hard 
to talk about like how is that how do you deal with that in a newsroom knowing how polarizing it is and how challenging it is like is there in the, like, as a citizen as someone who's interested in the public even i read about it but i'm like i don't want to talk about it because i'm afraid i'm going to offend or, or screw it up frankly i don't want to screw it up um i'm guessing there's a similar feeling amongst journalists trying to talk about it but i'd be curious if, if that is in fact the case andre i see you nodding so well the the, the pressure is 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 very high because these you know there's an important Jewish community. There's an important Arab community also present in Canada, and they have their views and and mixed views because not all you know Jewish think the same way, and not all Arabs have the same views of this conflict. But these are important, very important issues for them, and it has become also an important issue for many other Canadians who really believe in that one camp is right and the other is wrong or whatever. And so it makes certainly our, our coverage, uh, I'd say, more difficult, more uh, challenging. Because, but the way we approached it is that uh, we we didn't have a correspondent there. But each time the conflict fared up, and 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 on other many other occasions, we sent uh, one of our war reporters because we had reporters who cover these conflicts. On, on on the ground and we simply told them tell us what you see just tell us what you see so that someone who's from Canada and Quebec reading this can at least have an angle of what the facts are right and if we send someone in Israel and someone uh, on the Gaza Strip for instance we have two reporters they cover the story they give us they tell us what the, what we would see if we were there and don't force people into an opinion simply tell them the facts and they will make I think own. that that's a really good point, Andre. I mean, it's a um, it's one of the many things that has become increasingly difficult, I think, for journalists in the last year, and that's that we can't go there, right? So there are news organizations that have correspondents on the ground, certainly, but but many do not. And they can't get there, so they can't see it with their own eyes, they can't show you what's right in front of them, they can't introduce you to people, and, and as Andre said. You know, stick to the facts in that way. And then you couple that with how do you deal with the misinformation? Like there is so much video out there and, you know, for any story, but the story, you know, presently is one that's creating so many challenges. It's very, very hard to verify the video. And so for newsrooms, whether they're in Canada or they're around the world, they're being flooded with videos and, and people who, who really believe those videos to be telling the story from the perspective that the rest of the country needs to see. But journalists' first job is to try to first verify those videos. And it's, it's a lot more complicated and a lot harder than people realize. And I think that this is a, um, it's a story where both sides feel that their views are not being properly expressed. And I think it's unique in that way. And I also think that, you know, it's complicated. It's a complicated story for your average person to really wrap their head around. And yet it's full of loss and emotion. And so there's there's a lot going on, but I, I will safely say that it, it, has, it has certainly been one of the most difficult stories for Canadian newsrooms to cover for decades. It, and, you know, I threw out the example when we were talking about it earlier this week, but you know, the BBC has a complaints page that is specifically dedicated just to this story because they're flooded with so many perspectives. And I would say the vast majority of them are, are critical of their coverage. So 
one of the criticisms, like you mentioned Carolina complaints page, right? And I think one of the criticisms, and as a, I will say this, as an as a identified conservative, I often, and I do believe it is the case, there is a left-leaning bias in the media. I think people attracted to those kinds of jobs tend to be on the left end of the spectrum, not the right. Um, and that's sort of the tone of coverage. I also think you can argue there's a, there's a concentration of media in urban centers, which means there's less understanding of rural areas. There has been a lot of criticism of the media, generally, that they tend to torque towards the Palestinian side of the discrimination as opposed to the Israeli side of that. Um, Michael, I would be curious, throwing that grenade at you, <laughs> how is balance even possible in coverage of this? Or uh, are you no, worried about As As Carolyn said, it's, it, and Andre, it, it, this is a very sensitive, difficult issue. Uh, it's so difficult that that the, that the Toronto Star and all the Global Mail and all the New York Times have, have written an editorial uh, on this. That's so, an interesting point. I didn't even see, I didn't realize that, yeah. No opinion on the biggest story in the world. And maybe they're scared or maybe they don't want to once again do that sort of hand-wringing where they trot out their tired cliches, you know. Um, but, I, you know, you, you remember there was a group of uh, Canadians, maybe 30 of them, some work at the BBC, at the CBC, some at the Toronto Star, some at the Global Mail, some are freelance, who came petition saying that all news stories have got this correct, all news stories need to have the words ethnic cleansing in them about this issue because that's what it is. So when you get Canadians, I feel very strongly about this, you get Canadians, how can Canadians expect a, a fair and an accurate coverage um, from journalists who clear, clearly seem to be lobbying for an anti-Israeli bias as this story is reported uh, domestically. And then, you know, I say, wh wh where's the newsroom management from the Star and the CBC and the Globe? And, and I think they should provide, the management should provide a, a table-thumping denunciation of what I think is irresponsible young people for the most part. And there's been no reaction. There's been no reaction uh, so far. And, and maybe that's smart. Maybe management shouldn't react. And these young folks can just say, hey, you know, we did something provocative. Aren't you going to fight us? Uh, and the, the, you know, the answer appears to be no, uh, not on this one. I think also uh, to your point, Carolyn, it is very, very dangerous with uh, social media. There's a, you know, the, you, you put the numbers of CNN and the BBC and CTV News and Globe and Star, all those people together. And there's a billion people watching this on social media, looking into social media feeds. So it's, it's a thousand times more on social media and you've got celebrities piling in and film stars and rock stars. And, and there's a great responsibility with that and they don't seem to take uh, much responsibility. Um, if, you, if you followed that story this week of that uh, model, uh, Bella Hadid, she I think has about 50 million followers. And in New York, she was at a demonstration, a pro-Palestinian demonstration. And there's, and there's hate and misinformation on both sides. And the danger is, it's, 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 it's Twitter and, and Facebook that are pushing this sludge to people who's for the most part, I know Andre said many uh, uh, Jews and, uh, uh, and Arabs have different views, but I think for the most part, their views are baked in and it's very hard to change anybody's mind. What you can do is make that what they think turn to poison instead of turn to something that you can debate and talk about and finally find what most of us think and hope will be a two-state solution which right now doesn't look as though it's possible. So that's a lot to say, but boy, it's a tough story to cover. And I do wish our young journalists hadn't stepped into it with their own political point of view. I also think that, you know, just more generally, but 
there's such a danger when it's when you're scared to cover a tough story. Because I think everybody agrees it's a story that needs to be told. And but when it becomes so challenging to tell it in a way that feels fair and balanced, where you feel like you have access to the facts in the way that you need to have them, and where you feel like you have an audience who gives you some space around uh, around how you describe the story of the day. If, if people start to get too anxious about it, they'll stop covering it. And, and that's a bigger problem than the concern around, you know, balance over time as, as opposed to balance in a day. I mean, there's, there's lots of, the Middle East story is, is one example of many that fall into this category, but it's, you know, it's, it's something that journalists face a lot. And I think it's at our peril, do we, do we find ourselves scared to cover something? Can I ask one actual mechanical question to, to Caroline who, cause both Andre and Michael are print obviously, right? So print and photography and, and what have you, but as a TV, like, I think these are stories where like the power of TV is, is incredible, right? Like social is, I think picks up on that, but TV really is like, just smacks you in the face with a lot of, a lot of this. You mentioned because COVID, we can't be over there, right? Um, I've been reading a little bit now about like blockchain and how in the future we'll be able to certify videos and this kind of photo, photo, photographs and stuff embedded within being real, but we don't, that's available, not being widely used. So I know you're not for, currently in the newsroom, but given they are covering this, how are they validating the videos are true and accurate? Like, how is that, what's that process? Is that only through whatever correspondent you can find on the ground or are they sourcing it from civilians? Like what's happening? No, well, so I can't speak to what's happening today, but I can certainly speak to what has the, the evolution of verifying video, you know, that became a really big thing in Syria. Um, and, and as social media became such a big source of information and no, there's a, there's all kinds of processes. So there, there are, you know, your source. So, but then if you only stick to mainstream news media, where, you know, you have a correspondent on the ground, then you, you miss the best video because you miss the unexpected moments, the terrible moments, the emotion of the young girl, that type of thing gets lost. And so there are, I mean, CBC will have a team of people who verify video and it's like a bit of a full-time job, particularly wow. in a story like this. Um, I, the BBC is way, or they were way ahead of the game. Um, I remember having the great privilege actually of spending some time with their team and, and really trying to learn from them and in, in, in understanding how important it was because at first it was like video, any video is great. And then you realize how quickly you can lose your credibility and how quickly you're, you, like how damaged it can be if you show a video that's not accurate. So just an understanding how you can verify it. Like ultimately, I think it will need to be something that's somewhat AI driven that can really, but you would be amazed that people actually picture match. Like yeah. really in some ways, old fashioned, like let's, let, let's Google search that. Can we go to that neighborhood? Can we take a Google map from a month ago? And can we compare it? Does this picture actually fit? And so like it, it also, it's hard because it takes time. And this, we, we live in such an immediate world that people want to see the pictures right now, but it, but yeah. newsrooms are being, are trying to be careful, but it's, it's an, it's a bit, it's still a slow process in many cases. Th th those verifiers do fabulous work, as you say, that, 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 uh, flower store wasn't on that street last year and yet you know or it was on that street now now you're saying it or the mountain range doesn't you know fold over the other mountain range it's it's fabulous work i think one of the other difficulties about about fake video uh, when it's uh, done by uh, social media by regular ordinary people and posted is that there's no context to it there's often it's often exaggerated by what you don't show 
uh, and, and so you're not able to sort of sift some kind of truth out of that. There's, it's, it's just amateur video in, in the worst sense of the word amateur, which can also be very good. Uh, and so I think traditional mainstream media, to your point, Carolyn, has much more responsibility right now just to take a deep breath and just verify stuff before you show it. And if anything, that's, that's our money in the bank. The trust is money in the bank. Speaking of uh, fake videos, um, our last topic I want to have a little bit of fun with. Uh, <laughs> so the Pentagon next week is going to roll out their information on UFOs. And historically, any story about UFOs, I think people sort of laughed. It's been equated with Bigfoot, yada, yada, yada. But um, actually, the Toronto Star, I will give a hat tip to their podcast. as a very interesting podcast from last week around this and how Canada deals with it. Because there actually have been significant... Um, one, the sightings have gone up during COVID, but two, there has been like actual pilots who have seen stuff in the air, right? There's been re- records of them having to deviate around saucer-like things, around, you know, whatever, weird lights. So these are trained, avi- like, this isn't just crazy people in their backyards. These are trained aviators who fly all the time and say, hey, I saw something, I'm reporting it. All to say, this is now being surfaced. The New York Times is somewhat taking it seriously. Um Frank or um, Rubio's in the in the U.S. talking about it openly now. He's on the defense committee. I, I am also I will say a Star Trek fan from when I was like a tiny little girl. I used to watch with my dad. So I have long believed that if we can exist, why can't other extraterrestrial beings exist? So I feel like maybe this is the start of something. But curious to all of you: one, do you believe in life outside? And two, are you at all intrigued or as excited about this story, kind of coming to the fore as I am, Andre? <laughs> Well, I'm a, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. Are too, you? So Which I'm, one? Yes, I am. Well, the first and the others, but I the first TNG. one especially, yeah. But, um, and I, I think, you, I mean, your reasoning is perfect, perfectly logical in such a large universe. You know, the fact that we would be the only living, intelligent living uh, species, it, does, it it's just not logical. So yes, there probably is some form of life, intelligent life somewhere out there. Now, I'm just curious to see what material uh, the United States will publish, because what I've personally seen as sorts of pictures reported in the newspapers, there's never, it's, it's like the uh, Loch Ness, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's never clear. Why cannot, I mean, we're in 2021 and we have cameras on our phones. Why can't someone take a clear picture of whatever <laughs> there is in the sky? That's what I can't get. Once they get a clear picture of, and whether they're pilots or anything, once I see a clear picture of an object that I cannot understand, except that it comes from another world, then I really believe in it. In, in it, it is them visiting us. Uh, because I believe in the existence of, uh, you know, intelligent life elsewhere. It's just that I'm not sure they ever visited us. Yeah, you never see someone, Andre, waving through a porthole. (laughs) (laughs) You've been been, uh, very close uh, to the throne of power in Ottawa. So why do you think that Transport Canada, that gets three or four UFO sightings, which I've now learned to call unidentified aerial phenomenon, which I can't barely say. (laughs) Why do you think Transport Canada when it gets those sightings, keeps them secret, and then you have to go and FOI it. You have to do a freedom of information request to get anything about it. I, 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 I can only uh, imagine, oh, actually, oh, Andre would, yeah. No, I can only imagine, ahead. I literally thought about this because I'm sure the US government has a much more sophisticated way of monitoring this. I'm sure it's like one person's list somewhere and they don't want to give the information that they, they don't see the benefit of giving it out. So they're just, they're innately, government secret by reflex. 
as opposed to transparent, yes. right? It's particularly in Canada. People actually, I'm sure you all are much more familiar with this than I am, but our FOI rules and the, our, our, our public data is, is way behind most other developed nations of our kind. So I also just think we haven't taken it. I'm guessing the government doesn't take this stuff seriously. I actually think they should, but I don't know. We're, uh, Caroline, where are you on this? Oh, I'm just thinking that we heard it here on uh, political traction that Andre believes in life outside. I'm totally- Andre intrigued. and I, he's not alone. We are standing so together. To be honest, I'm not saying I don't either. I just find it all intriguing. I What I'm interested to see is like, you know, 60 Minutes did special on it. They're quoting Obama talking about it. There's this big report. I'm yeah. I'm intrigued to see what what kind of um, like what, what it might cause with other countries. Like if 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 America is going to release this report, will it change oh, the way other governments act? Will it legitimize something as you said that you know everybody sort of thinks that you're wearing a tinfoil hat if you believe in you know in, in life and in in UFOs and things like that? I, I wonder if it will legitimize it more and maybe I don't know. It's fascinating. I speak with some expertise here, um, and this will date me. <laughs> I can't wait. I feel like you should get a cocktail for this or something. Here we go. Well, All right. When Major Gagarin uh, uh, went up into space, I was a little boy. My mother dressed me in the original aluminum tinfoil hat and breastplate. Uh, and <laughs> so, uh, I was an early believer in space travel and, uh, uh, and, and what that meant. And I know it's not, um, I need to make this declaration now. I know it's not France 1940, but when those little green men come, put me down as a collaborator. I'm going to be on the <laughs> <laughs> All right. We are way over time, but we want to get to all these topics. Um, thank you all. Before we go, uh, Habs versus Leafs, thoughts? Oh, you, got a lot of ex- you got a lot of Montrealers in the room, Amanda. So you're, all, you're all Habs? Yeah. I don't actually care about hockey, so yeah, we can all be a Habs podcast if you'd like. No, I'm a Habs fan, but I don't think they can win it. I think the Leafs are way too strong, so I'll say the Leafs right. in six games. So will the, does that, would that make it to the Bell Centre with people in it, Andre? Is it game six or game seven? Uh, I think it's game six. six that will be I interesting. Think. I hope you get that. I hope you sh- you, sh- yeah. you guys deserve it in Quebec. You've done such a good job managing the pandemic in the last month or two. So not the beginning, but the end. It's true. Well, yeah. I can tell you that I have two sons who are very avid hockey fans and they are certainly Leafs fans. And there has been a lot of discussion around tonight's game. So there you go. Right. I would, I'm always quiet about where my allegiance sits. Well, maybe the Leafs for once will get out of the first round of the playoffs. But even if they do, it's going to, I'm sorry to say this and don't tell your sons this, but it's going to be the asterisk uh, uh, series for them. Well, that, that, yeah, that's what people say that it would be so tragic in some ways if after all these years the, the Leafs win the cup and nobody gets to watch them. But, but it is a historic matchup. The Leafs and the Habs. It's been, what has it been, 40 years, I think, since they've yeah. Yeah. in the playoffs? 40 years. Andre, I think the, uh, this podcast will be gone by the time uh, the game will be played by the time the podcast runs, I think. But Andre, I think the last time the, 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 you, there were no hope Canadians, it was when Ken Dryden uh, became a superstar. And so uh, it's all down to your goalie. <laughs> yes. Or he was Who's, a poet and an MP. Yeah, who, Ken Dryden, yes. And uh, Carey Price is not a poet, but uh, he can certainly play in the nets. But whether he's in good shape or not, is a question right so we'll all right thank you all very much uh have a wonderful weekend and hopefully we will get some positive news about reopening over the next little bit so we'll all be able to meet on a terrace as michael says <laughs> <laughs>
Saludos, Nico, amiga. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Nice to see you. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show is produced by Simon Bredden, Hunter Nifton, John Gardner, Kimberly Draypack, Carolyn Sporkin, and for the last week, Nico Waltonbury. Nico is leaving the Political Traction and Navigator world to go back to school, but he will be missed as he's been a central part of our show. A very special thank you also goes out to our panelists, Caroline Harvey, Andre Pratt, and Michael Cook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate us online wherever you find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Traction Polly. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We'll see you next Friday.